Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, in financial markets, the rise of Kathy Wood and her ARC funds has just been extraordinary, and it's been predicated in large part upon the cool new technologies that are out there that they've really embraced in terms of investments. Think no further uh, than Tesla. But the recent months have been a little bit challenging. Let's dig into it. We can do that with Ben Steverman. He's a personal finance editor uh, for Bloomberg News. Ben, thanks so much for joining us here. The big take story here is Kathy Wood's bad spring is a blip when the future is so magnificent. Tell us what you found about Kathy Wood and the ARC funds. Yeah, so this story looks at just, she's been such a phenomenon over the last year. You know, she's sort of ca perfectly captured the mood of the market last year um, when, you know, we were all, a lot of people were stuck inside and um, people wanted nothing more than to look forward to the future, to this, to this beautiful future that Kathy Wood is talking about, which is one of rapid technological change and um, one where, investors can make a lot of money by betting on innovative companies. So those companies just really soared uh, through up until about February, and then they kind of turned over and, and she's had a really rough spring. So, so the story looks at her and it really looks at her vision of the world and, and how she sees she, what basically what, what the vision that she's selling to investors and the one that she thinks that she can make money on if you're patient. I, I always think um, the timing is perfect for Kathy Wood and ETFs as well, right? Because I've been following um, these exchange-traded funds for a, a good decade. I always try and get Eric Balchunas on the show. He's like our resident um, genius on ETFs. There's never been a breakout manager with the kind of fame that Kathy Wood has in this sector of finance. And it's like the generational um, timing is perfect, right? Because the, the kids are now investing and they're doing it through ETFs. And this is an ETF that speaks to them because they hear about it on their social media platforms. She's such a throwback in some ways, not just in ETFs, but just in investing generally. Like, who is the last person who really appealed to the retail? Who was the last manager that really appealed to the retail investor? You have to go back to like, you know, I guess Warren Buffett is one is some in some ways or, or around the 2000s. But we've had this long period where people have been real, really all about the index funds and and passive passive investment. And we haven't had a big star come along and capture retail investors imagination. And and here she comes along and she's um, not only not in the mutual fund world, she's in the ETF world. But she's a woman, you know, this very male dominated um industry um i think she's is, that's that's just a fascinating phenomenon ben is there anyone else in etfs is there any other etf manager that we all know <laughs> no i don't think so <laughs> yeah, otherwise otherwise ben would have written a story on them um yeah yeah ben what is uh what is the thinking here i mean what is kathy wood saying now about her her strategies here given that uh, her performance has lagged over the last uh you know quarter or so what she says is you gotta you gotta keep the faith. That's what she says, and she, she's a religious person, and, and and I really think that that her views about technology and the and religion and kind of 
they kind of align a little bit, but what she's saying to people is um, we were like the, this sell-off and the innovative stocks just means that we have, we're going to make more money over the long term. They think that, that their portfolio can triple over the next five years. They have these very bullish um, uh, estimates for what's going to happen to, say, electric vehicles or DNA sequencing or uh, artificial intelligence. And a lot of the traditional analysts on the street are just like think that these things are completely crazy and a little delusional. But um, she has been proven right. I mean, I mean, in terms of at least Bitcoin and Tesla, when she made targets, uh, price targets for them a few years ago, um, they they eventually were hit. Um, and a lot, there were huge uh, there was a huge amount of skepticism at the time. But but you know, basically for for her to be proven right technological change really has to accelerate coming out of this pandemic. And, it, and it, you know, it may, but we'll see if that actually makes her money. It's so weird that, the, that um, you know, the Reddit uh, phenomenon has boosted her along with these really, um, I mean, Bitcoin is in some ways a Reddit phenomenon as well. Now it's kind of moved to Twitter. But um, she's got this millennial draw, even yeah. though as you point out, her mentor is Art Laffer, who is like a scion of the 80s. And right now, as we're going through this uh, real shift from Reaganomics over the last 40 years to now the era of $6 trillion big government budgets um, from President Biden, she's still she's she's now coming on and reigning supreme. Yeah, she's a real contradiction. I mean, she's 65 years old, and yet she's capturing the, the the attention of all these young investors. And she's politically conservative, but yet she's also a huge investor in green investments. And uh, she doesn't use the word climate change a lot, but she's she's been a champion of Tesla and other kind of green. And the, and the investors are sticking with her, aren't they, Ben? I mean, there, I mean, there, there's been some redemptions, but not that much. No, like. Barely a billion dollars has come out of the funds um, since February, and she's she's really people are really sticking with her, and, and she does a good job. She goes on she she really wouldn't have an in depth interview with us for this long profile, but she's been on the on the record so much, so many times. She comes on TV, she does conferences once a week. She's on with us and commentaries. Yeah, and <laughs> and that really helped that communication strategy. She really gets out there and tells a story to people about about what they can get if they just are patient and stick with her. I mean, in some ways, she's really going to benefit from this new era of big spending as well, right? Because um, as we build out the infrastructure and invest in this in that country, uh, this country as well here in Germany, <laughs> we're, we're helping out Tesla and, you know, the electronic vehicles. Yeah, her vision for where the economy is headed is, is, is pretty interesting. I mean, she thinks that inflation is not going to be a problem because these innovation, these because these technologies really are going to the cost of a lot of these technologies is going to fall as they become more popular. And right. she's not worried about the economy overheating at all. Well, Ben, uh, congratulations be to you and Annie and Claire on this Bloomberg Businessweek cover story as well. It's an awesome cover. I recommend. Our listeners, check it out. If you have a Bloomberg terminal sitting in front of you, just type NI Big Take Go to see this story. Kathy Wood's bad spring is a blip when the future is so magnificent. This is Bloomberg. Well, one of the areas of the economy that really got a boost during the pandemic was sports betting, online gaming. People were stuck at home, and they, uh, more and more states are allowing sports betting, off-site electronic sports betting. It's been a big growth driver. Mike, 
Chavarella. He's chairman of the board of LS Game Technologies. He joins us to talk about this business pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love for you to just talk to us a little bit, just give us a brief uh, description of what sure. LS Game Technology is. What do you guys do? Sure. Well, great. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Um, so just LS, LS Game Technology has been uh, in the leisure sports betting business for about 20 years, primarily in the Italian market, which is a hugely competitive market in Europe. Uh, in Italy, we're, uh, we're customer-facing with B2C licenses, both online and land-based, and we own our own technology stack. And that tech stack that we own, we developed it only a few years ago. So it's considered one of the newest uh, betting platforms in the world. And and if I got put an analogy to uh, building buildings and, and real estate, it's kind of like a design build where we you know, took time to understand the behavior of betters, what our clients were driving for. And we uniquely designed this platform to specifically work in the sports betting uh, uh, world. And that's our current business. And, and in 2021, uh, we're looking at coming into the U.S. And, and capitalizing on the brilliant growth opportunity here since possible was repealed in 2018. So what? Uh, how does this work then? Can I bet on Buckeyes football? Sure. Do I bet on um, Paul Sweeney's Knicks in the NBA? Sure. Um, can I bet on no hitters in, in Major League Baseball? What, yeah. what, what, what betting goes? Sure. So, so I guess the first point about that is that sport, uh, any, any uh, sports bet that you are permitted to do in any regional jurisdiction, if you will, is always uh, dependent upon the regulation in the area. So, for example, in Italy... We're, our, our clients are able to bet on just about anything under the sun, as you would imagine. And we, as an operator, get a full feed from our data providers, and we use a variety of them. Uh, and, and then we distribute it. And, of course, the, the, the primary pr uh, products, like, say, in Europe and so in, in Italy, it'll be soccer, right, Syria and so on. In, in U.S., like, that will differ on state-to-state -state basis. And obviously, uh, but if you want to bet on the Buckeyes, uh, certainly, if our feed provides it, uh, then we'll be able to uh, allow you to bet on it, depending on the area that you're in. So it just seems, uh, Mike, that sports betting, I, I live in New Jersey where it's been legal for some time, um, yeah. is just yeah. all over the place. It's all over sports radio in terms of the ads for it. You know, yeah. as this economy reopens, one of the key areas is kind of restaurants and entertainment venues. Right. Do you expect right. sports betting to be integrated into that kind of experience? Well, let me just say this way. Um, you know, the, the European market is more or less a leading indicator. And when you look at, um, at uh, what, wh where people are able to, uh, to bet in those jurisdictions, like they can go to a local coffee shop or a, a sports betting, uh, uh, you know, uh, outfit. So basically where you walk into like a, a, an agency where you can bet on, on anything. Um, that model there has been active in, in Europe for the better part of 20 years. And we see that ultimately in the United States, after the repeal of PASPA a couple of years ago, a lot of the, the states sort of took up the opportunity and get started. Uh, uh, I see that they, they tethered certain licenses to large casinos or single operators. However, I think that that dynamic is going to change over time simply because, um, you know, the, the, the sports betting is a, uh, is a product uh, that needs to be, uh, well, actually should not be monopolized. Because sports bettors need the variety. They need the variation and odds because the ultimate outcome of a game uh, is the same, regardless of what, uh, what, who's playing and what, who, the, who the athlete is, like in a golf tournament. 
So the outcome is the same. So sports bettors need a variety of operators to be able to compete because the secret sauce between operators is the odds. And you as a sports better are shopping odds. And if there's a monopoly in the area, then obviously uh, sports bettors will go offshore and keep it in the dark. And and that's not the purpose of of being regulated. So what, what our model does is it takes aim at the entrepreneurial engine of economy in America. And if you could think about it, the restaurant economy in places like New York or Washington, you have millions of people that visit these places throughout the year. Like if there's a Super Bowl or a uh, uh, NBA final, Stanley Cup and, you know, March Madness, you know, these establishments are flocked by LSU fans during championship games. So it really becomes a supercharged and social environment where sports and sports betting is already consumed the most. So our model, even though we're able to do everything that, say, for example, New Jersey requi- uh, like, uh, requires from a licensing perspective, be it online or land-based, our technology, because of the distributed model that we use in the Italian market and all these small shops, it is able to scale down as opposed to just only scale up. It's able to scale right down to the smallest denominator, and we're able to service these restaurants and bars and allow them the opportunity to do that. But again, it's always predicated on regulation. So in New Jersey, for example, they would need to permit restaurants and bars or small entities uh, to be able to get a license to, to process a sports bet as an ancillary product to their core business. And that really has to happen. We, we hope to see that. We see that mm. that trend is occurring and it started in D.C. And, and that really would be a cool trend. And I think that that's, uh, that's going to be a differentiator in the U.S. as we grow. Uh, all right, Mike. Well, we hope to get you back on as we learn more, uh, as you know, this progresses post-legislation, um, post-regulation. Mike Chavarella is the chairman of the board at Ellis Game Technology, talking to us about sports betting and um, how it could look as the economy reopens and as these businesses start to really get going. He's betting on LSU. I'm betting on the Buckeyes. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. Now, I want to bring in Kim Bassin. He is a U.S. luxury reporter for Bloomberg News. He's got a new story on the terminal. Macy's needs another miracle on 34th Street to secure its future. But, Kim, I got to start out with some props, man. I I, uh, (laughs) first started following you after I saw that $260 million park that you posted about in New York. And then I started reading through your stories. And I think you have an incredibly unique eye in picking out some trends in uh, some social trends that are really carrying through to the markets. I read your story on another lane that the, the uh, sneaker uh, seller that I thought was great um, <laughs> about the, uh, the, the pot users that are spending $800 on bongs as stigmas fade here and cannabis <laughs> becomes more mainstream. And I just think it's so cool that you're able to piece these things together that are, are kind of trendy among uh, a, a new generation um, that is now getting more and more money to spend, but also tie in so well to, to to markets and the growth areas that we're seeing. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's really important to look at at, at cultural things and how they're influencing companies and, and what they do and, and the products they sell and, and what people buy. All right. So Macy's, you talk about a pillar of New York City and New York City retail sits smack there, dab in the middle of Manhattan at 34th Street and 6th Avenue, but it's a department store and that's a tough business. Talk to us about how their CEO is looking to reinvigorate the company. 
Yeah, Macy's wants to build a skyscraper on top of the biggest department store in America. So this would be an office tower. Yep. Um, at somewhere around 900 feet, which is a bit shorter than the Empire State Building nearby, uh, just a couple blocks away. And Macy's Herald Square, that store, yep. is their flagship. It's their most important store in the country. It's their most valuable real estate. Their headquarters are there. Uh, it's their most productive st- store. Uh, it's the overwhelming center of gravity for this business. So it, it makes sense that they would want to double down on that. But of course, there's questions here, right, uh, whether something like that would work. What's the business situation with Macy's? Because, you know, I'd prefer to go to Bloomingdale's, which is also theirs up across the street from our um, 731 Lex headquarters. I'd rather go to Bergdorf Goodman um, to look around at stuff that I probably can't afford. Um, You know, there's so many other choices um, in London, in New York, um, around the world. Macy's just seems kind of like Sears in terms of how exciting it is to walk through. Macy's had just embarked on a uh, their latest turnaround plan in February 2020. So line that up with the <laughs> pandemic, and a whole lot of that was derailed, and they went into emergency mode, just like just like everyone else out there. Um, and they're they're everyone's still in it. So uh, the department stores have been on the decline for for so very long, uh, but th- there have been glimmers of hope. You know, Macy's has been closing stores to to have. Uh, uh, less square footage out there and while investing in digital commerce, e-commerce, online sales and, and all of that. And so they've been making those steps, but it's still just a, it seems like an eternal struggle for, for department stores. Can they get New York City approval to build a skyscraper on top of Macy's? Yeah, so where that that's at right now is the latest thing they've done is submit a proposal to invest $235 million in the area surrounding the Macy's store. That's Herald Square itself. That means pumping money into the neighborhood in order to secure those rights to build the skyscraper. Um, these plans will turn that plaza, the Herald Square plaza, into a more pedestrian-friendly area with a bunch of new transit uh, entrances because it's on top of a, a, yep. a subway station that nobody likes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I use every day, by the way. Every, every single day. day. Uh, and that proposal is now public and will will be set to go through the city's review procedure. And that involves the, the, the community board, local leaders, city council, and everything. All right. Just real quick, Kim, any sense of timing and whether we're going to get some clarity here, whether they can do this? Uh, I, I, we're just going to have to see what they think about about these plans. Uh, something like this will take many years yep. anyway, and uh, they're currently in preliminary talks with developers to fi- try to find some some partners for it. All right, this is an aggressive move by Macy's to try to add some value to a company that's really in a challenging space, that being the uh, department store uh, business. Kim Basine. Maybe it plays in, though, you know, to the way the city is going to change yeah. post-pandemic. It's it going to be really interesting, and Kim's done some reporting on, like, the new look of New yep. York. and with the impetus of massive spending that we're going to get across the country, maybe we do see a change. Yeah, maybe. It's uh, it's really interesting, but it would be great for that area uh, as I walk past it every day. Kim Basin, U.S. luxury reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So good to have folks coming in live. I want to bring in Dave King right now. He's Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Income and Growth Strategies over at Columbia Threadneedle Investments. They have... $564 billion in assets under management. Dave, um, we're seeing 
today, uh, more growth for, I noticed this morning, cyclicals again are rising, Ford and General Motors. We got gains in General Electric and Boeing. And there's some clear catalysts there. Um, as our stock editor told us earlier with, you know, Airbus's announcement yesterday and uh, GM's plant openings, Ford's investments. But it seems like this whole reopening, um, reflation, respending trade is really getting back on track. Is it something you're betting on as well? Well, I think that that's true. But I also think the reason to bet on it is last year's market favored quality bonds and uh, disruptive growth stocks. So not only are you benefiting from this strength in the economy, which at some point was predictable, uh, but also good starting valuations on the kind of companies that you're you're referencing. Um, Ford Motors having a great day, but the stock price is lower than when I joined Columbia 11 years ago, for example. <laughs> so you're you're you really um, have that combination and. Um, as I've said to many people for several months now, I think the play is uh, the dogs of the Dow or the revenge of the nerds. You know, by the by, the big companies that people thought were boring, and as the economy recovers and perhaps you see some price inflation, make money. All right, give us some uh, name some of those dogs, would you? Well, the the dogs of the Dow for people that don't know. The procedure are simply the 10 highest-yielding stocks in the Dow. And at the moment, that's Chevron, IBM, Verizon, Dow Chemical, no relation, um, Walgreens, Merck, Coca-Cola, Amgen, 3M, and Cisco. Never even heard of those stocks. <laughs> no, I know. I'd try, try getting through a day without using the products and services of those companies and, um, you know, Imagine that those stocks were woefully out of favor last year, and I think you get the investment opportunity. It's it's not something you need a master's degree to figure out. But it's opinion. not on Reddit, and it's not, you know, um, Kathy Wood isn't investing in these companies. Well, you know, I don't know the second point for a fact. The first point, I'm sure you're right. Um, it's It's really old-fashioned, you know. I'm just sitting here staring at one monitor with my sleeves rolled up and buying stocks like this and uh, I'm I'm clearly not in vogue but uh we're up between 15 and 20% in dividend opportunity fund this year so it's it's not crazy there's something going on here David you know I think investors certainly since the financial crisis they've been pretty comfortable with some of the big tech big cap tech names you know an Apple or an Amazon I can buy those things put them in my 401k and really not have to think about them for a long time. Now this rotation play has been working so well for you know uh, value investors and, 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 and even small cap investors. Give us a sense of how long you think this thing can work. Is this something I can just put away and it'll be a multi-year trade? Well, there there's variance in in the value sector with that, and it's a great question. Um, you know, among the dogs that I've mentioned here, I have a feeling that that would be fine to do with Merck. Uh, I already mentioned an auto company that was highly cyclical, so I don't know that you would necessarily take that approach with every one of these stocks. But, you know, that being said, the investments that uh, Berkshire Hathaway made last year, and they have special dispensation to not reveal them for six months, were in Chevron and um as well in Verizon, two of these dogs. 
And um, I think people were like sort of shrugging their shoulders when they heard that. And then all of a sudden, oil prices went back to, to normal levels. And Buffett's probably up 30% in his Chevron already. Uh, Verizon hasn't done much yet. But, you know, he's got time. We've got time. So um, there is, in other words, a need to sell some of these stocks at some point. But given people's predilection to trading so rapidly these days, I'm talking about, you know, take a look at it in a year or two. And if it's doubled or tripled and doesn't have a good yield and isn't a dog of the Dow, maybe you should, you know, take a big profit then. I mean, I absolutely love the um, the idea. And obviously, you've made a ton of money on it. What are your biggest worries, though? What are the headwinds that you watch out for? Well, I do think there's a huge question whether the inflation we're seeing today is temporary dislocation coming out of one of the strangest recessions ever, um, or whether it's going to prevail. To that, I'd say if we have prevalent inflation for a while, it'll be bad for all financial assets. But for income seekers, 20 of the 30 stocks in the Dow yield more than the 10-year Treasury. Right. And if we have inflation, you won't get more coupon from the government, and you'll only get $100 back, whereas the nominal dividend in most of those 20 companies will grow over time. So I I really still see it as a clear alternative for an income-oriented investor. All right. Hey, Dave, we're going to have to uh, leave it there just because of time, but we really appreciate your time. Dave King, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Income and Growth Strategies at Columbia Threadneedle Investments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.